0: You're listening to a classic business podcast, as heard on Classic 1027.
1: It's not surprising that in the midst of the greatest public health crisis the world has faced in over a century and the accompanying economic devastation of lockdowns, uh, particularly in an emerging economy such as South Africa's, emotions are running high and debates intense about how to manage this crisis. There's still much we don't know about the virus or its effects, And the effects of the lockdowns, though, are beginning to be uh, gauged with much more regularity. We know that things like food insecurity, particularly child hunger, has increased. We know we're having uh, devastating impacts on uh, long-term education outcomes. And uh, there's obviously the significant churn in the labour market, the economy slumping to its worst recession in the post-World War era. So uh, the specific policies to contain the pandemic are of major public interest. Well, tonight, the Free Market Foundation bestowed the first free Market Foundation Award upon Pandemics Data and Analytics, otherwise known as Panda, a group of uh, multidisciplinary professionals for making a credible case for freedom as an alternative to lockdown during the COVID-19 pandemic. Nick Hudson is chairman of Panda, and Nick, you accepted the award on behalf of the group. And uh, I know many have excoriated, Panda, but you've remained steadfast to the line that you took early on in the pandemic that lockdowns cause more harm than they seek to prevent. You've been censored by big tech and by large swathes of the media. And while I might disagree with some of the things Panda has said, I certainly cannot ever agree with censoring dissident views. Looking back, what has this experience with Panda taught you so far?
0: Good evening, Michael. Yeah, it's been an amazing uh, year when it comes to learning. There's no question that we've all learned a lot through this process. But the thing that's been impressed upon me more than anything else is the extent to which our institutions of public health are riddled with conflicted relationships. There is just simply too much influence from the big pharma companies, big tech companies, for all of of whom this lockdown and the associated panic around coronavirus is manna from heaven. And so what we see is our institutions of public health, our academic institutions who are meant to protect the public and prevent panic from happening, actually inflaming the situation and causing it to be far more deadly than it would otherwise be.
1: Well, no policy response can be perfect, Nick. Uh, What is your main gripe or concern with the way governments around the world have responded to this pandemic and ours here in South Africa in particular?
0: I think the main thing that went missing was the fundamental reality that this is a disease that affects the elderly and severely comorbid about a thousand times more than it affects younger people. If you grasp that fact, then general lockdowns do not make sense as a policy response. They will be expected to actually worsen the outcome. And you can, in fact, see that the countries with the most stringent lockdown restrictions had the worst mortality outcomes. The reason I say this is not a surprise is that what you should be trying to do is to reduce the relative mobility of the vulnerable elderly. And you don't do that by locking down the young. All that does is shift the disease burden onto the older people and the disease eventually finds them and, you know, they can then become severely ill and in some cases die. What we should have done was let everybody get on with their normal lives and taken reasonable measures to protect the vulnerable minority or susceptible to a severe disease course.
1: And what what are those reasonable measures? Considering that uh, I think in lockdowns, uh, government's rebuttal might be that it's trying to ensure that uh, the young don't go and infect those with the comorbidities or the elderly.
0: So, you know, there again we come across uh, an important key to the whole thing, which has also been uh, ignored and a perspective that has actually been censored in media and social media, which is that. There's a much bigger component to transmission of this disease that is related to airborne aerosols. There's been much made of the whole story of fomites, which is uh, viral uh, droplets on surfaces, you know, with all the sanitising and so on that's gone on. And on the droplet in droplets, you know, that are meant to spray three or six feet or two metres or one metre, depending on which which health authority you're listening to and that is those two forms the the fomite and droplet transmission describe what we what we call contact transmission so the extent of contact transmission has been overestimated and the extent of airborne aerosol transmission has been underestimated and what what if if you take the full measure of the the importance of airborne transmission you take different strategies for example you will apply your attention to the ventilation of indoor spaces, especially in hospitals and nursing home uh, settings. And yet nobody has drawn attention to this very important life-saving story. Instead, we're running around wearing masks outdoors when transmission doesn't happen outdoors almost at all. And on, you know, putting stickers on the floor and plexiglass shields in restaurants and trying to keep everybody a certain space apart and lines for air, airplanes and so on. And that's all really nonsense. It's not doing anything to so, slow the spread, as, as, is, as, is, as it's called. Uh, so the attention was on the wrong form of transmission. Mm. And if you want to protect old people, you make sure that the air that they're breathing, breathing is not laden with viral particles. And you do that by making sure that the spaces they occupy are well ventilated and that they spend as much time
1: outdoors as possible and i think you know nick where i tend to agree with you on that point is uh, in the use of blunt force lockdowns as a tool to stop the spread of the virus when weighed up against the economic cost to society which also causes loss of life Uh, where i tend to disagree with Panda is on the masks issue uh, because the basic scientific question is does wearing a mask in a non-medical setting reduce the probability of viral transmission either by the wearer or or to the wearer. And I think, you know, just if you let me finish here, there's a very interesting, widely held view among medical scientists that if you look at the random controlled test, the RCT, which is the gold standard, that it hasn't been conclusive. But if you take a different... A different mechanistic reasoning which was shared by uh, Sean Miller recently. On, on the other hand, it doesn't really require such agnosticism. In the present case, the logic may proceed as follows. You've got SARS-CoV-2, it's a virus, it's transmitted from one to another. As you've just said, the main source is respiratory droplets, aerosolized, and mm-hmm. holding other factors constants, anything that reduces the volume of such dro- droplets from contagious individuals will reduce transmission rates. So masks worn over the nose and mouth that are not overly porous will surely block transmission of some proportion of droplets. Therefore, masks should be worn. It seems a fairly straightforward reasoning.
0: Mm. Yeah, the, the intuitive logic is exactly as you spelled it out. You've done it very well. But the reason we see no evidence for the effectiveness of mask mandates is that that intuitive logic misses a couple of important things. The first thing is that aerosols that stay suspended in the air and that are responsible for Infection um, are much smaller than the the, uh, the the spaces between the fibers on a mask. That's that's point number one. So, you know, people use the analogy of throwing sand at a chain chain link fence, and I think it's a fairly good one for in, as far as aerosol size uh, droplets are concerned. The masks do nothing. And the question then is whether larger droplets get stopped by the mask, and of course they do. And we don't need to do an experiment to learn that. But then what's missed in that analysis is what happens next? When you breathe out over a moist mask, you aerosolize the droplets, and they project out into space along with the vast majority of the droplets that simply pass through the mask. And if that's the model, the intuitional model that you have, then you're not too surprised by this repeated finding that randomized controlled trials do not show any benefit, and more importantly, that the imposition and lifting of mask mandates shows no impact whatsoever on the trajectory of the epidemic, and there have been spectacular demonstrations of that, where you know the mask believers say, when Texas ends its uh, mask mandate, oh, the bunch of Neanderthals—they're all going to die—and months later, absolutely nothing has happened. You know, when that, when you make that kind of forecast, and it comes so startlingly. Um, undone in the real world, you should be revising your intuitional theories. Our view has always been that the main thing the masks did was remind everybody of the constant presence of the deadly virus and that that was very bad for health outcomes. Fear is not a virtue.
1: On another issue of critique from Professor Alex van den and there there was a much publicised spat between yourselves and uh, Rebecca Davis and and others at the Daily Maverick that eventually went to uh, the press on board, and he was asked to give uh, a professional opinion. Uh, He took issue with your uh, likening the virus to the flu. And uh, according to Panda, the the IFR that you've used in the narrative that uh, is officially touted by Panda is that for the flu, um, we're at 0.2%. And that's pretty much where we are for coronavirus SARS-CoV-2. However, he says if you apply that to the excess mortality estimates, uh, then it seems implausible because the infection levels in South Africa to the week of 7 March would mean that 82 million people would have been infected based on uh, his COVID deaths derived from excess deaths.
0: It's a bit of a disingenuous argument because he took that mortality rate from a discussion of global mortality. So obviously they're going to be countries lower than the average and countries higher than the average. I mean, the fact of the matter is that for under-70s on a global basis, the mortality rate, rate um, is 0.05%. And to describe that as being in line with the flu is absolutely not to say anything extraordinary. Um, but if more, moreover, it's missing the point. When this disease arrived and the World Health Organization was sending everybody into absolute panic with its talk of a 3% fatality rate, we were in a different domain. And what happened is, over time, our failure prevalence studies have surprised people all over the world, and we've discovered that the virus is not nearly as deadly as we thought. It's more than an order of magnitude less deadly. And that's the fundamental part of the point we've been making, is that the risk was massively overestimated by the WHO and the modelers and others, and therefore the messaging drove fear into people and that was a huge public health blunder fear is not your friend so you know he can say that and we can quibble over whether it applies in South Africa or not or and if not why not is it because of the policies we adopt we we adopted we would say it is um, but to to talk about us as misinforming the public because we repeated Mm. Statistics of the World Health Organization itself relating to global mortality is very disingenuous.
1: Now, I mean, he uh, he says effectively that in an environment where we're dealing with this novel pathogen, it isn't advisable to be making statements that he's called reckless. What he says is what we should be doing is erring on the side of caution where evidence is weak but where a public response is nevertheless required. Looking back, do you think potentially... Banda has been reckless in its public utterances.
0: Not at all. In fact, I would turn that around straight away. When the evidence overwhelmingly is supportive of the assertion that lockdowns worsen mortality and that mask mandates do nothing, it's reckless to continue on recommending them at huge cost because those costs all come back to haunt us in the form of other public health problems. I think that all of those academics in that group of scientists, the scientists' collectives, need to take a good hard look at themselves. They're deeply conflicted. They all receive funding from these large big tech and big pharma organizations, and they are unable to actually speak the truth, even if they do happen to stumble upon it. So that's the challenge that I would make here Mm. to journalists in South Africa in general and to the public at large, is to scrutinize the conflicts of interest of these scientists who keep on supporting these measures that have yielded so little benefit and come at such huge cost, not just a cost economically, but a cost in terms of public health and lives. And that cost will be with us for a very, very long time.
1: What is next for Panda from here after receiving this uh, this recognition from the Free Market Foundation and uh, continuing to be uh, censored, I see, by uh, big tech and certain parts of the media. Uh, what, do you, what do you do now with, with Panda and the momentum and institutional capacity that you've built up uh, through the pandemic?
0: Well, we will continue to try and be the voice of proportion and reason in the face of these irrational and, and, and devastating measures. Um, I mean, even as we speak now, the, the call is out for a, a vaccine in every arm at enormous cost when the rest of our healthcare system is falling apart. We could substantively eliminate COVID as a significant cause of death by vaccinating around 5 to 10% of the population, the elderly and the vulnerable. So we ask the question, why the misallocation of resources to this attempt to vaccinate everybody down to the children? This would seem to us to just be nonsensical from a public health perspective and a measure that absolutely should not be. Mm. Uh, Proceeded with, especially in light of the fact that these vaccines are all still in their experimental phase.
1: And the government uh, literally had more than a year to prepare hospitals and to organise staff uh, and we're now uh, with our major health facility in Charlotte my care care still closed uh, and having seemingly learnt none of the lessons from the first two waves as well as the rumours sm- swirls around uh, sending the economic uh, hub of the country back into level 5. Nick Hudson, Chairman of Panda, uh, as always, thanks so much for holding a different view and for being unbowed with that view and uh, for helping us to think uh, very deeply about uh, what we are told and what we are led to believe about the uh, coronavirus pandemic. Thanks for your time.